here we go. It is the John Saxon Story podcast. This is episode one with Jenny Hatch as the host and Naconia Hayes, the author of John Saxon's story biography, here to share with you why the cover photo was chosen. We're going to read the preface to the book, which contains much of the history of the math war, the introduction, and a few thoughts on math instruction in the United States. Nikonia Hayes, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jenny, for inviting me. So why did you choose that amazing photo as, of John as the cover for your book? Well, actually, as I look at it, there were two reasons. One, he was so proud of his algebra book that he published in 1981. And this particular photo had not only the student edition of that cover, which is different from the cover that I saw later in later years, but then the Algebra Teacher's Edition and then the Algebra 2 book. And what was funnier was the way he's holding his glasses because his daughter Selby said that he was constantly losing his eyeglasses because he left them on the top of his head. And so I found this photo of him holding those glasses like that, like he was holding on to them. And he just has a nice, wonderful, winsome look about his work. And I loved it. What year did John pass away? Uh, 1996. And what year did you decide to write the book? I'm not talking about when it was published, but when did you decide to take on the project? I retired from education in 2006, and I decided to start writing it in 2008, and it was published in 2010. And you published it yourself, is that correct? Yes, because I had trouble finding anybody who was interested, just like he did. Well, today we're going to do a bit of a deep dive explaining why that might be, why it's still somewhat difficult to find oh, this book. Could I interrupt? I'm so sorry. On the cover, the, where I say a genius of common sense and math education, that was really, really important to him to be a common sense person. And so I meant to say that a while ago. Well, and why don't we go ahead and read the back cover, too, before we dive in to the preface? Okay. Uh, one of the neat things was finding a couple of wonderful um, math professors that knew him and supported his work. One was Wayne Bishop, who was, is a professor of mathematics at California State University in Los Angeles. The other one was James Milgram, who is an emeritus professor of mathematics at Stanford. And they agreed to write. I've heard of that Stanford professor. He was the one who refused to sign off on the Common Core Standards. Exactly. Yeah. Jim is fantastic. But anyway, they both wrote wonderful comments. And, and uh, the other one was Frank Wong, who was his CEO and one of his good friends. And the one thing I guess I will read about Frank is saying there was absolutely no phoniness about him. I even remember his wife once saying, John is cursed with clarity. And for a lot of people in education, that is a curse, to be cursed with clarity. Um, Wayne Bishop, in his thing, was saying that it was very hard for anyone to find someone on a national level who would work for math education that could be understood. And then uh, Jim Milgram said that after all the data showing that Saxon math worked, especially with at-risk students, it's undeniable and the almost fanatical resistance to using the program by the vast majority of this country's school systems is, in and of itself, 
the strongest indicator of the fact that the system is in deep trouble. The country owes John Saxon a huge debt. And then the back of the book also has a column of his Saxonisms. This is something I created because he was just such a wit at coming up with a retort or with a response and would set people on their feet. Like number one is results, not methodology, should be the basis of curriculum decisions. Results matter. Creativity. Go ahead ahead and read them all because they're fabulous. Okay. Creativity springs unsolicited from a well-prepared mind. Mathematics is an individual sport and is not a team sport. Students do not detest work. They detest effort without purpose. Beautiful explanations do not lead to understanding. Teachers are not paid to teach. Teachers are paid to find a way for students to learn. Teachers say they're going to teach children to think. The children can think already. What they need to know is the math to use in their thinking. Our math experts aren't really experts. They have abdicated all claim to control by their behavior of the last 20 years. Now, this was like in 1996. So he's talking from 1976 to 1996. The photo of him as a pilot, a test pilot for the new jet airplanes, um, is on the right-hand side of the back cover. It said, John Saxon was a test pilot at Edwards Air Force Base from 1957 to 1962, awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross in the Korean War. He later taught at the U.S. Air Force Academy. John held three degrees in engineering. When he became a junior college algebra teacher after his military retirement, He was stunned by the mathematics deficiencies in his students and the weak teaching materials he was supposed to use. So he wrote an algebra book in 1981. When he died in 1996, the company had sales of $27 million per year. Fabulous. Let's go ahead and open the book. Did you have any sort of a dedication or... I dedicated to my parents, Harold and Sarah Smith, common sense folks who model good teaching, and to my Kansas cousin, Jean Ann Blakely, who gives increasing support to my efforts. So my folks were all from Kansas and farmer type folks. Wonderful. And why don't you go ahead and read the preface first intro and then the first paragraph, and then we can alternate paragraphs to give each other a break. Okay. It was one thing for John Saxon to take on the mathematics education establishment. It was another for him to take on a special interest group whose followers were bankrolled by the federal government. With $83 million in federal tax dollars being pumped into the math education reformist camps during the 1990s, any entrepreneur not in the chosen circle who opposed reform math methods and who was publishing his own math textbooks would have to battle more than a high dollar of funds that guided this math. Who was publishing his own math textbooks would have battle more than their high dollar funding. He would have to challenge the political ideology that guided all their decisions regarding America's math program. While facing the unfair financial competition from those who had the federal tax dollars to use as their own capital, John soon learned their two major supporters, the National Science Foundation, NSF, and the U.S. Department of Education, USDOE, would act as political stonewalls against any outsider opposing them. He would learn about the insincerity of many educators who preach tolerance and diversity of individual thinking unless he agreed with them. But far worse, he would learn how American education had become more about adults than about children. To the math reformist exasperation, John persisted as if bringing to life a Don Quixote character attacking their big windmills. Unbelievably, without... After starting his own publishing company in 1981, 
With $80,000 scraped together through loans and savings, John's business earnings of $27 million when he died in 19... Uh, let me back up. When he died in 1996, in spite of the reformist efforts to shut him down on a daily basis. Saxon believers became hardened and resistant to anyone who disparaged his products because they had seen the undeniable results. Kids who actually liked math and were being successful. For the reformists, it was his insistence that he was right in how American students should be taught mathematics, as evidenced by stacks of irrefutable and proven data. That was a truth they refused to accept. In a bizarre imitation and with no acknowledgement, they have since become willing to incorporate many of his practices and even his words in their reform curriculum materials. Now, I've got a footnote there and a, a number three as a footnote, Jenny. And when someone reads in the book, they'll find that all of this information that we just read came from videotapes of John's own talking that his kids gave to me to listen to. So I'm not going to be able to flip back and see where this footnote was, but it was probably in a videotape that he gave me that he became very, in a way, upset and yet thought it was funny that they were adopting some of his terminology later on in their books. It is, it is gratifying to get that nod, but you can bet they didn't source it, right? Right. <laughs> we're just going to take this and uh, call it our own. That is funny. All right. Um, so in 1989, the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics, NCTM, published a document called Curriculum and Evaluation Standards for School Mathematics. Their self-proclaimed authority was endorsed by the NSF and U.S. DOE, and starting in 1990, the government's massive funding began flowing to members and supporters of the NCTM leadership who often served as consultants and authors for the new materials. I will interject here, too, that what happened was uh, the federal, federal people would offer grants to school districts who would then adopt their approved materials, which never included John Saxon. So the money that came flowing to districts was to, frankly, bribe them into using the new fancy materials. It's a precursor to President Obama's race to the top money that he yes. used to bribe the districts to incorporate Common Core. Yes, absolutely. Um, Paragraph, with vast sums of money to spread among districts that would use their unresearched curricula, they became powerful resources for schools who had never recovered from the 1960s new math debacle and were looking for a rescue plan for both mathematics and science and were looking for a rescue plan for both mathematics and science education. The NCTM document became the Bible for state use when writing their own standards by teacher training institutions as they readied teachers to go into the nation's schools. They became a French special interest group of, quote, leaders, unquote, of the mathematics establishment to whom business and government officials repeatedly have turned to for guidance, including today. The newly enacted state standards and training courses mandated that NCTM values, as stated in that group's publications, be implemented in school classrooms across the country. Their top priority was the establishment of egalitarianism through mathematics instruction. Lessons were specifically to be, quote, redesigned, unquote, to appeal to special subgroups of minorities. And in paragraphs, except Asians, and I'm going to insert something here, Nikki. The Supreme Court is just about to take up two very, very important cases around the issue of preferential admissions to certain institutions based on race. And these, these lawsuits have been brought by Asian families. Yep. So except Asians and girls who supposedly preferred group settings, lots of verbalization, hands-on activities, 
and self-actualization through, quote, discovering, unquote, inventing mathematical concepts and principles. White males and Asians were left out of the, quote, reformed, unquote, program because they reportedly learned by linear and deductive reasoning compared to girls and minorities who, according to limited education research, research sources, preferred lessons based on inductive reasoning. The NCTM focus had to be on these subgroups. They believed in order to bring required equity among students within the mathematics classroom. If the boys and Asians learning styles were not addressed, that was not a problem for the teachers to consider. John railed against the lack of research to support the outcomes of such a racist and sexist plan. Also with his respect for historically developed concepts, principles, and subsequent wisdom gained by building upon generational knowledge within many disciplines, not just mathematics, John was angry when reformists deliberately chose to ignore these rich paths of learning and focus on having children create their own histories of mathematical understanding. This was a foolish waste of precious learning time, he declared. With 27 years of his using mathematics in the real world, John believed that clarity should be the number one priority in mathematics education as students worked for accurate results. As a military officer with three engineering degrees, a former combat pilot in Korea, and a test pilot who risked his life to fly experimental and innovative aircraft, John knew the value of clarity in answers to real problems of mathematics in his own work. He knew that literally life or death could result from solutions in mathematics. Therefore, results mattered. He also knew that clarity in the problem-solving process could get him to answers more quickly, and that could also impact a life or death situation. Processes and results thus had to mesh so that both were clear and accurate. And Jenny, I want to focus on that very last sentence. I had marked that in my book uh, for me to remember. Processes and results thus had to mesh so that both were clear and accurate. One of the worst, uh, what I want to say, one of the worst things that has happened in this new egalitarian math is that processes or processes have become so convoluted, so difficult that parents can't help their children do math problems. And that is, to me, a sin. When you cut out parents from helping their children because the processes have become so completely corroded, then there's a problem. Well, I've said it like this in one of my articles. If you cannot understand what is being asked on your children's homework, there's no way a six-year-old can figure it out. Exactly. Okay. John learned that consequential understanding in the analyzing, synthesizing, and evaluative thinking that were required to solve mathematics problems helped students learn mental operation skills to be used not only in mathematics, but in other disciplines and throughout their lives. That was the power of learning real mathematics, he said. The problem was in getting the depth of mathematics put into simplified pieces for easier comprehension and application. It did not mean changing the historical discipline as was being done by the NCTM followers so completely that it became unrecognizable to parents, confusing to students and even frustrating to many of their teachers. The desire of NCTM to recreate historically proven mathematics procedures in order for them to fit into certain students perceived learning styles would prove disastrous, he said. Mathematics content explanations and student learning would both suffer. John truly appreciated the internationally recognized symbols and proven algorithms 
and procedures that could be shared across borders. This common knowledge could be offered from one country to another in solving critical problems at the international, national, and local levels. That was the consistent contribution of mathematics, historically based and studied, universally used, and with solid teaching and learning about the immediate cause and effect for individual decisions. Changing the purpose of mathematics, a balanced discipline, which had been, been designed for thousands of years to get the right answer in the most efficient way could cost a person and even a society more than time. It could rob each of a successful future. In essence, John's real mission became one of saving children's lives from inept math education practices. He wanted them to be able to choose a career they wanted rather than having a job forced on them for lack of a solid foundation in mathematics. John persisted in his mission because of his own values and pragmatism. It is the lack of values clarification between those two, those who agree with John's philosophy and those who promote the reform agenda that has been underappreciated by a rising tide of unhappy parents against resistant curricular decision makers in the escalation of the math wars in local school districts and even some states. Because of the, because of the increased opposition to their NCTM program, they hired Dr. James Hebert, a professor of education at the University of Delaware, to write a report in 1999 about the criticism regarding their lack of research to support their 1989 curriculum standards. He offered a simple but profound observation. Only debates about values and priorities will be decisive in common ground, for example, that a post you're, always Nikki you're, okay. Nikki, you're breaking up again. Start with only debates. Okay. Yes. Um, he offers simple but preservation. Only debates about values and priorities will be decisive in finding common ground for examining research. He said that a post guides would always be able to find to support their points of view. Okay, I'm going to insert something here. Everybody who's listening, go click into Netflix, Family Ties, that old show with, um, I can't remember the actors, the beginning episode, season one, episode one. You have Alex, the protagonist in the show, in class, math whiz, algebra, his younger sister, Mallory. She's stupid. She can't figure it out. She's like all the other kids. Matt, Alex is special. He knows how to do math. She's stupid. She doesn't know how. Through the culture, through the television and movies that we've been fed over these many years, these ideas that only the certain really smart white kid or the Asian kid could figure out math and all the rest were just math illiterate, couldn't figure it out. What nobody ever questioned as they watched these shows is why, why aren't they digging down and finding out why what's going on with the curriculum? And so I believe that the elites have used culture, the movies, the television shows, to just grow this narrative that there's certain people who can figure it out and there's others who can't. And the real question is, what curriculum are kids being taught with? And so I'll, I'll pick up with the next paragraph. Just want to show that okay. the culture wars are big and all-encompassing. Yep. So proof of which, she said that opposing sides would always be able to find research to support their points of view proof of which values are most effective in producing success in mathematics education, according to John, would come from three sources. Significantly higher math scores on national and internationally recognized tests, consistently higher scores on college board exams, and a major increase in enrollment in higher mathematics and science courses. Paragraph, since mathematics is the language of science, he already had data showing the remarkable success of his own program. The reformists did not. Their spin and ink have been consistent nonetheless, as they have steadfastly refused to meet John's challenge. Even today, 
more than a decade after his death. Why should they? The reformists have had quietly gained political control of the public education system in the 1920s. The NCTM then gained total control within mathematics education in the 1990s, with that huge influx of federal dollars to those who supported their ideology. With that much power, why should they have to prove anything to John Saxon or to any other dissatisfied person or group, including parents? In the beginning, all John wanted, had wanted to do was publish his newly authored first-year algebra book. He had written it at, the, at his dining room table, proven it produced good results with his junior college students. And he even had outstanding results during a year-long field test in middle and high schools during 1980 to 1981. That's more than any other mathematics textbook had ever done, shown proof of its productive capacity before it was put on the market. Yet, six New York City publishers rebuffed him because he didn't meet their one criterion for authoring a high school mathematics textbook. He wasn't a, quote, committee of experts, unquote. Only in education, John learned, were a person's academic credentials and relationships more important than results. So John went home to Nor Norman, Oklahoma, and started his own publishing company. In 1981, he sold 3,000 books. Five years later, he was earning several million dollars a year. By 1996, when he died, the 27 million in sales of Saxon Publishers was growing at 35% a year. This is therefore the story of how John Saxon started a second career as a math teacher after retiring from the year. And then so... You're breaking up again, Nikki. Sorry to interrupt. I think it's okay. best if you probably go back to the beginning of the paragraph. Okay. This is therefore the story of how John Saxon started a career as a math teacher after retiring from the U.S. Air Force and then finding himself working toward one specific goal, improving his junior college students' non-algebra. He had come in that algebra was a critical crossing point into other mathematics courses, which many students needed for a preferred career. If they didn't make it through algebra successfully, their life choices of careers could, could be, would be, totally altered. As he often explained, I darn near flunked algebra. Without it, my engineering degree would have been out of reach. John's worry about his students had led to his discovery that simply reorganizing the mathematics information inside a concept could simplify its being learned and reduce student anxiety. He figured out how to cut mathematics concepts into small pieces, shuffle them among each other, so that no one concept was ever left in a hunk or chapter to learn and have students review those pieces continually throughout the year, every day. This he believed would help automate their skills and improve their memory of those skills. The automation through constant review of basic pieces would allow students to work increasingly difficult problems without getting hung up on the foundational steps of algebra. He called this new idea incremental development with continual review. By 1976, he had two paper book, paperback books of problems he had created from scratch, which were being used successfully by his Oscar Rose Community College students in Midwest City, Oklahoma. In 1979 and 1980, those books were published in two volumes by Prentice Hall Publishing. By then, he had become frustrated as he realized that foundational problems in algebra shouldn't even have to be experienced by students fresh out of high school. The problem of their learning algebra proficiently needed to be taken care of before they reached college. Convincing 20 Oklahoma middle and high school teachers to try his basic college textbook 
and compare it with the regular textbook they were using, John saw much to his delight that his simplified method for teaching the, quote, hard discipline, unquote, of Algebra 1 could deliver absolutely outstanding results in both the high school and middle school levels. This field test was even monitored and verified by the American Federation of Teachers of Oklahoma. I will insert here, too, if I don't, I can't remember putting it later on, that the AFTA got into huge trouble with their home office for giving a positive and glowing review of John's test results. Um, that is in the chapter later in the book telling about that. So um, they paid a price for supporting him. Okay, not only did the students who used his, his method learn the fundamentals of mathematics required in algebra, more substantially as shown through quantitative test scores, but they had learned to like the subject because they succeeded in it. In subsequent data reports from across the country, Saxon students went on to take more mathematics classes and they made higher scores on all types of tests, including those for college entrance. The teachers who used his unique method swore by it and lined up to testify on his behalf. To them, his mathematical simplicity was pure elegance. This provided him with qualitative data generally cherished by education researchers to support the quantitative test scores. Because his program design was in fact deceptively simple, the reformist denigrated it as, quote, simplistic, unquote, and openly stated it was for the, quote, lower level, unquote, student. The fact that at least 50% of American students were scoring at the lower level of performance on national and international mathematics tests was lost in their observation of his work. John's design produced unbelievable test scores and increased enrollment in mathematics. They did You're breaking up again, Nikki. Okay. I'm sorry, you're breaking up again. No. Can you just start start again? Sure. Even though John's design produced unbelievable test scores, increased enrolled in higher mathematics course, they revealed it as not producing students who were, quote, creative thinkers, unquote. Thinking creatively somehow did not mesh for them with students who were progressing to higher levels of performance and more demanding coursework in both mathematics and sciences. They dismissed test scores as unimportant because they said that no written test could fully measure a student's abilities. This attitude was repeatedly stated as students' college board exams were declining and were becoming part of an exponentially growing number who needed remedial math in colleges and universities. Ironically, when the same test reflected any increase, no matter how slight, these scores were hailed as proof of their program's successes. In spite of their own lack of successful results, the NCTM supporters used their political clout to establish state standards based on their values to help block John's books. He persevered against them with an energy that defied those around him. As Linda Rhodes, the Oklahoma sales representative explained, a competitor's sales agents, agent once said to me that when they find Saxon, it's like they fall into a black hole. They never come back. John's more eloquent supporters argued they didn't see his methods as a retreat into the past, but as a postmodern appropriating of traditions for their effectiveness in the present. Okay, I've lost you. Did you not hear that paragraph? Yeah, um, I, I got that, but then I lost Jeff that. Go on to, I guess, to the next paragraph. Okay. One news report confirmed the obvious, however. As a brash challenger to the American educational system, Saxon is sure to find intellectual ambushes along the path to progress. To be clear, John knew his mannerisms could be unappealing to many staid educators 
who preach their own version of, quote, good behavior, close quote. Being a military man, he could lace his conversation on occasion with profanity. They didn't like that. He talked decisively with expressive gestures using his hands and sometimes scrunching up his face as he was making those points. They didn't like that intensity. He did learn to hold his hands closed in front of him because his earlier hand punctuations in the air were said to be distracting to listeners. Anger could clearly could be clearly apparent when he talked, not masked behind, quote, smiles and agreement, close quote, before any clarity had been reached. And this was reported in news stories with descriptions of his flashing or piercing blue eyes. I have to turn the page. And evangelical zeal. In fact, John's eyes were hazel. One reporter from Massachusetts wrote in 1983, he has no need to use a microphone when he speaks. He booms out his message through clenched teeth and a voice that resonates with enthusiasm. And as he talks, with one hand closed in a fist and the other nervously jingling coins in a pocket of his perfectly pressed pants, John Saxon's eyes are fired with the zeal of a missionary convinced that he can save men's souls. Then there was the time he was making a pitch to the Dallas, Texas teachers in the mid-1980s. He jumped on <laughs> he jumped on top of the conference table and proceeded to tell them how they were doing everything wrong. They sure didn't like that. In spite of such a commanding display by John, the Dallas superintendent bought the Saxon program. The undeniable results turned out to be more eye-popping than John's tabletop behavior, according to one Dallas teacher. Nikki, this is why this book has to be made into a movie. <laughs> I know. <laughs> He's such a character. <laughs> okay. In essence, John was a man in a hurry, and he didn't have nice with people who had power. I love that. I love that. Go ahead and read it again, because it's, go yeah. ahead and read it over again. Breaking up. In essence, John was a man in a hurry, and he didn't have time to play nice with people who had power over children. He willing, even eager, to be dove hungry man of Maddox education, quote, close quote, in order to draw attention to the American crisis in a key, key field of study for any society. Because of his age okay, and wanna, arriving at the end. Sorry? I want to read that line again because. I want to read okay. that line again because it broke up. He was willing, even eager, to be dubbed the angry man of mathematics education in order to draw attention to the American crisis in a key field of study for any society. Because of his age and arriving on the education scene in his 50s, he often commented that he had a limited time to try and stop the education machinery that was grinding up American children. Being a tactician, he deliberately set out to make a lot of people mad, both inside and outside of education circles, in hopes of getting them to talk about the issues. It worked. I'll make them so mad they'll spit every time they hear my name, and that will rub off on the major book companies, and the major publishing companies will be slow to copy me, he said, followed by his well-known and distinctive high-pitched laugh. That meant he could get his unique, revolutionary, successful books into the hands of students, teachers, and parents without weakened, modified imitations of his work. His opponents thought his behavior was part of a strategy to make money. It was instead John's strategy to, quote, spread the message, close quote. Upon his death in 1996, one of his opponents was joyfully greeted by her husband at an airport, exclaiming, I've got some great news for you. John Saxon is dead. She let out a loud whoop and joined in his excitement. Such antagonism was the attitude John and his supporters often faced. But the di big difference between John and his opponents was that he saw life as a time in which to be enthusiastically engaged especially when combating those 
who opposed his ideas. For that reason, he would never have jumped with joy if one of them had died. As an example, when hearing about a blocking of his book by a state or district, one of his favorite sayings was, Now the fun begins. A humorist at heart, John admitted he often had a good time reveling in his stalemate with math acclimaticians. A more touching response was written by a Saxon company employee, Shannon Floyd, when she sent an email after his death to fellow employees, his customer base, and colleagues. And I'm telling you, Jenny, I read this last night, the two paragraphs, and tears came. So I'm glad you're reading it. We will miss his voice, his laughter, his joking, his idealism, and his honesty. Most of us felt John as a personal presence with emotional impact. All of us felt him as a presence of unquestioned authority throughout the company he built from nothing but an idea. His spirit not only made books and the mission that formed Saxon Publishers, but his love for his work was palpable in the Saxon offices every day. He renewed us with his vigor and his belief in something bigger than himself. We rejoiced with him over the high scores resulting from his first books, over the discovery of Stephen Hake as an author who embraced the same teaching philosophy, over the success of Nancy Larson's primary math program, over the unprecedented victory John and Kathy Green achieved in Georgia in January 1995 over the curriculum bridge the company crossed in publishing Lorna Simmons' Saxon Phonics, over the milestones passed as the company has grown in space and employees. We couldn't help rejoicing with John because his own excitement demanded it. Keep going. He was often as difficult as he was unusual. He could exhaust you in a one-hour conversation. He was relentless in pursuing his goals and absolutely committed to his own viewpoint. An argument with John Saxon lasted until his opponent gave in out of self-defense. This ruthlessness <laughs> was tempered by the fact that you always knew that John was acting not merely out of self-interest, but out of what he felt was right. You could accuse him of many things, but not hypocrisy. We appreciate the fact that we were allowed to know him and benefit from his vision, and we hope for the strength and the knowledge to keep his company thriving without him. It will never be the same without John Saxon, but it can continue to be a mission of excellence. This is the house that John built. Long may it teach. Quote, the house that John built, close quote, took a non-compromising stand on one side of the, quote, math wars, close quote, that started raging in school districts and states around the late 1980s, early 1990s, I should also insert. In fact, it could be said that John was one of the first who declared open warfare against those who would subvert the purpose of math mathematics education in America for their own ideology or for financial and prestigious gains. A reporter wrote in the Los Angeles Times in 1982, like many passionate men, he perceives his mission as a journey into a valley of greedy enemies. To him, the enemies are publishing houses that place profit over educating and textbook authors who write with arrogant disregard for the compelling needs of students. Readers learn in section one about John Saxon's life of adventuring before he entered the publishing world, his foray into teaching, the writing of his first textbook, and the battles he had to fight to get his ideas accepted in schools and states, and his legacy within the company and among his colleagues. This covers John Saxon through his death in 1996 and the sale of his company in 2004. Then, 
Oh, sorry, that's your chair. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, okay. Then section two, which is composed of chapters 23 through 25, is designed to be a standalone publication called A Math Warrior's Almanac. It details, mostly in John's own words, his philosophy of teaching and the correct methods that can produce success when using his program. It appears on www.saxonmathwarrior.com for sale as a separate PDF book for $9. This special publication in October 2009 was to give parents, civic leaders, and independent thinking educators a source to use in response to the U.S. Department of Education's push for national standards in mathematics and reading. I need to interject here that I do not have this on sale online anymore. I'm thinking of doing it because it is a teaching manual for anybody using Saxon math. Um, so you probably need to take out about the standalone publication. I'm sorry. I didn't realize that's where we were going to go. No, don't apologize. In fact, I think we should just leave your explanation right now in the podcast. Oh, so okay. People yeah, know but, that they can perhaps buy it as a Kindle standalone or see it yeah. somewhere online. I'm, I'm looking. I'm looking at just reproducing it to be sent in the mail. So if somebody just paid me nine dollars, I would just mail it to them instead of they're trying to download it. It would actually save them money to have yeah. me just send it to them. If that's but, what you want to do, I mean, you could potentially get millions of requests for this book <laughs> so it might be better to put it on kindle but you know oh you well to... okay if you want to put it on kindle that's okay yes uh, anyway have... it's something that that you and i can talk about but i want them to know that, that if they buy the book those particular chapters are a how-to book wonderful okay Spec section three is an extensive epilogue that gives up-to-date information about new reports regarding mathematics education and the politics surrounding them. And I should insert here that in the show page on Colin, I have put a link to an article Nikki wrote at The Federalist, which is sort of an update as well. Um, if, mm -hmm. if readers want to just click over and, and review her article for The Federalist. Okay, good. Thank you. The end notes are in part four and an append appendix materials part five. So, that, do you want to read the acknowledgments? Our, do you want to read the acknowledgments paragraph? Uh, I don't think so because it's. I think my biggest acknowledgments actually go to his four children. Wonderful, three doctors, a pharmacist. Uh, he insisted that they find something that made their little hearts flutter, and he did not want them to go into the publishing industry because of what he saw that he went through. But uh, for three of them to become doctors and one a pharmacist uh, says a whole lot about their devotion to their father and his devotion to them. Well, they must have learned their math to go they into did. those fields. Yes, right. they did. Well, let's follow the preface with this lovely introduction. Teachers are not paid to teach. Teachers are paid to find a way for students to learn. That was John in 1993. Okay. Um, if Are we going now to the introduction? Yep. I just read the header for the intro. Oh, I'm sorry. All right. John Saxon's mother said after his birth in 1923, this being her firstborn, that she didn't think she wanted another child. At her age of 30, she said he just wore her out. He was a demanding presence from birth, very active, difficult to manage, and hard to discipline. He wasn't defiant, just determined to do what he wanted. He was, from the start, fully engaged in life, going forward in every direction. Any voice or directive that interfered with his activities was to be ignored. John later refined that behavior into, quote, adventuring, close quote, as he taught his four children to experience all of life's events as fully as possible, especially the non-material ones, meaning the ones you thought with your heart. 
And even though his mother didn't plan on having another child, a baby sister, Anne, arrived two months before John's fourth birthday. You know, I'm at the intro that talks about teachers are not paid to teach. Teachers are paid to find a way for students to learn. Is that perhaps the intro to your PDF? Was that I a, don't, a second intro? I don't know, because what I have is introduction to early influences. Yeah, I'm not in that file, and, and my husband didn't open this uh -oh. file. So well, how, how long is that intro? Do you mind reading the whole it's, thing? It's just three pages. It's not. Mind? I can do it. Yeah. Okay. I'll just listen. Okay. John continued to push boundaries throughout his 72 years, which included three distinct careers. In his first one, he finally learned to channel his boundless energy due to the regulated structure he had to follow at the United States Military Academy at West Point. But he was able to fulfill his need for bold activity over the next 21 years as a bomber pilot in the Korean War, an Air Force test pilot, and a year in Vietnam. After teaching engineering at the U.S. Air Force Academy for five years before being sent to Vietnam, John retired from the military in 1970 as a lieutenant colonel. After settling his family in Norman, Oklahoma, he followed what seemed to be a natural progression into teaching mathematics part-time in a junior college. This became his second career for the next 15 years. His third an overlapping career to his teaching duties was his becoming a mathematics teach textbook instructor and publisher. John Harold Saxon, Jr., born December 10, 1923, in Moultrie, Georgia, came from a family of teachers, physicians, farmers, and, quote, contributors, close quote. His mother, Zoli MacArthur Saxon, was called Mimi, pronounced like Timmy by her children and was a graduate of Agnes Scott College, a Presbyterian-affiliated liberal arts school for women in Atlanta. She had been a teacher for several years before marrying John's father and later taught her son a firm grasp of Latin as well as a love for reading. His father was graduated from Oxford Emory University and from Mercy University. He had been a teacher principal, superintendent, state high school supervisor for Georgia, secretary of the Georgia Accrediting Commission, and then executive secretary of the Georgia Education Association until his death in 1956. John was a descendant of Daniel and Jeanette MacArthur, who are from Scotland, 1740, to South Carolina. Daniel served in War. I'm sorry, Nikki. I hate I hate to interrupt you again, but you're you're breaking up again. Okay. Start with John was a descendant of Daniel. Yeah, that sounds good. Okay. John was a descendant of Daniel and Jeanette MacArthur, who arrived from Scotland in 1744 to settle in North Carolina. Daniel served in the North Carolina regiments during the Revolutionary War. After which, one of his children, John, and his wife Harriet moved to Georgia around 1814. There he became a prosperous farmer. His son Daniel was a licensed physician and practicing dentist. Daniel had 11 children, one of whom was John Saxon's maternal grandfather, Charles Zolikoffer MacArthur, an 1899 graduate of the College of Physicians and Surgeons in Atlanta. He practiced dentistry until ill health compelled him to retire and he started farming peaches and pecans. John's paternal family members were also early settlers in the new colonies. Starting in 1698 in Virginia was Samuel Saxon. As an adult, Samuel moved to North Carolina where he died in 1766. After interject, I put all of this in here for his children. They asked for me to include their family history. So I still think it's a good thing to have though. I do too, it's wonderful to hear this. The Saxon family then moved to South Carolina. Two of the men served as captains in the South Carolina militia during the Revolutionary War, and his great-grandfather later served as a colonel in the Confederate States of America. His grandparents had four children, three girls and a boy, and one of those girls would prove to be a particular blessing to her only brother, John's father. That special sister, Lazabel Saxon, who died at age 102, 
1990, had benefited from a Methodist evangelist, Dr. Sam Jones, who saw that she had an unusual ability and asked to be her benefactor as she pursued her education. She was graduated magna cum laude from Agnes State College. Its website today describes the continuing purpose of the school, founded in 1889, as being one to educate women to think deeply, live honorably, and engage the intellectual and social challenges of their times. She was presented with scholarships each year for the highest grade accomplishments. Lazibel received her master's degree from Columbia University and taught foreign language and mathematics in Atlanta area schools until 1953. It was Auntie Bell who ensured that her brother and sisters could attend college if they chose to do so with her financial and emotional support. Because of her, John's father was given the opportunity to become a teacher and an administrator. The educator's tradition extended into John's marriage as his wife, Mary Esther, became a university librarian later in their marriage. This continued her family's respected history within education. Mary Esther's mother had been a teacher and her father, D. Brees Selby, was the Enid Oklahoma High School principal from 1939 to 1954. Much beloved by the whole community, his funeral was the largest ever seen in the city when he died in 1968. John's daughter, Selby, said that when her grandfather died, she remembered her dad wept for days. He said my grandfather was the kindest man he had ever met. It's the first time I saw daddy cry like that. John thus had a rich history of educated family members with teachers among them, as well as a powerful education of his own making. However, a strong Georgian accent, while charming to many, was said to have contributed to the discriminatory caricature among some elitists towards Southerners, as pointed out by his new CEO of his company in 2002. That was Frank Wong. Such people couldn't know and evidently didn't care to learn that John had witnessed what good teaching and learning was all about from his mother and what politicking within the insular world of public education was all about. He also served a lifelong from Auntie Bell, who loved both mathematics and foreign language, as well as others in her and her last page. That is, because of his family's rich diversity of interests and studies, John actually embodied the philosophy of, quote, integrated, close quote, learning from the, quote, real world, close quote, so promoted by his opponents. His son, Johnny, says his father was a true Renaissance man because he truly loved history, good literature, poetry especially, and foreign languages. The mathematics needed in his career became a valuable tool that simply helped him enjoy all those other areas of life. It was this background, an innate drive to experience life to the fullest, a joy for learning and teaching and giving to others, which was further instilled with the West Point motto of duty, honor, and country, and being deeply involved by truly special educators that drove John Saxon into battle against the disastrous condition of mathematics education in America. He learned to distrust and more to despise a blind allegiance to ideology rather than to providing positive results to children. While he studied the internal workings of his opponents in order to fight them effectively, they clearly did not do the same. They thought if they just ignored this military man who had invaded their territory, he would go away. This cost them professionally. Their reactions to him and his program showed them to be false practitioners of tolerance, diversity, and creative thinking toward any individual who would not follow their ideology without question. It also cost them financially. By the time John's company was purchased in 2004 by major publishers after his death, eight years after his death, it sold 7 million books throughout 100 countries. John Saxon had proven a mathematics textbook did not have to be a clone of those that came before it. He was indeed, as Johnny said, a Renaissance man who saw the bigger picture of what students needed for a lifetime of achievement and at the same time 
was willing to be a strong warrior for just causes. That warrior mentality would be the one John Saxon called upon, surprising his opponents with a vigor and determination they had never witnessed in America's world of mathematics education. Wonderful. It is so great hearing your words coming from your voice. Thank you. It makes it so special. This has been a long show. We've been going almost for an hour. As I said last week, we will do about one chapter a week for the coming weeks and months of Nikki's amazing biography of John Saxon. So find us here on Colin. You can find this show on Spotify, Apple Music, and I am embedding it week by week on my own Substack for those of you to listen to who are interested. Nikonia Hayes, thank you for your time. And You're we will, welcome. We will resume this podcast next week. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.